2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'll bet you, you knew that was coming. For those of you who are guests, we try to go through one book a year in the morning service. And we thought this would be a tremendous text of Scripture for us to journey through in 2020 for so many reasons. And here we are. Last week, we began with a statement of proposition that read like this. God always and in every place. Sounds like a pretty nice hymn we just sang. God always and in every place enables us to carry on effective ministry despite our difficulties. Can we just say amen to that? Always and in every place enables us to carry on ministry despite any difficulty. Praise God for those of you, as I said earlier, who have been doing that as faithful as you possibly can. And then we outlined chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, the following way. Last week together, we began by saying that there's a balanced progress to gospel purpose. There's a balanced progress to gospel purpose. And we saw that in verses 12 and 13. Do you remember? Do you remember Paul's agony of soul? It was a paralyzing agony of soul that without the ministry of the grace of God in his life, he's he's left immobile in his person and in his mission. He, he goes and seeks to find Titus at Troas so they can get a report of what's going on in the Corinthian church and how Corinth had responded to his very difficult letter and even his second visit. He was in agony over, of soul over how Corinth responded to God's word. He went to Troas. Titus wasn't there. But he still fulfilled the ministry of the gospel through that open door while he was in agony over not getting the report from Titus. How much agony was it in? Go with me over to chapter 7 real quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's learn a little bit about Paul's agony. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's look at verse number 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within, but God. We love those adversatives in the book of Corinth. (laughs) We're going to find several more this morning. Several more adversatives. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow only for a while. And there's that famous text, on true repentance versus worldly repentance, okay, as seen here in verses uh, seven through or verses nine through eleven. 
Go with me over to verses 13 to 16 of the same chapter. For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything. I have confidence in you. We're not going to take time to... We're going to do that in a few weeks, right? What do we realize from 2 Corinthians chapter 7? That a true minister of God can be spirit-governed and be in agony and still serve. You can be in agony and still serve. As a matter of fact, that supports our proposition, doesn't it? In any degree of difficulty, because of the grace of God, we can make steps forward regardless how large the step in gospel progress. That's the story of the Christian existence. Gospel progress regardless of difficulty because difficulty in various degrees will always be there. Now, we got the report from Titus now. It was a good one, wasn't it? Corinth responded well. Corinth responded well. What a blessing it is to you when you find the people you're studying with walking in the truth, right? Your discipler. What a blessing it is for you when you find souls in your homes coming to Christ and walking in the truth when the four times they had been struggling. What a great blessing it is to all of us, right? To see our church family embracing truth and walking in the truth. And even this week, as we experience agony of soul, we have encouragement and comfort by you in the obedience, in your obedience to the Word of God. Flip back with me now to chapter 2. You can cross-reference right next to verses 12 to 13 as we move forward this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I could go there again. You're familiar, many of you that know your Bibles well for a long period of time, how Paul described by paradox the various depths of agony that he experienced in his personal ministry. We're going to do that in a couple weeks, as I said. But just know this, throughout the whole book of 2 Corinthians, this is a constant theme, sub-theme of the whole book. We can persevere well in gospel progress while we endure affliction. So that's the balance. You can be in conflict and still have progress. We've got to do it with the Lord and certainly cannot do it alone with each other. Okay. So as we move forward this morning, let's go on to our second point here found in verse 14. And our second point is we listed it last week was simply this. What about our divine influence in gospel purpose? What is our divine influence in gospel purpose? Let's read verse 14 uh, together this morning. Here's one of those adversatives, right? But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. This verse follows the bittersweet reality of existence of a spirit-filled soul who's determined to do the will of God. 
Paul states here how he was able to persevere even while depressed. As a matter of fact, I believe we're going to find out here through verses 17 that it was far beyond remaining serving while depressed. I believe these thoughts and these truths caused him to transcend in his heart, in his spirit, his depression. It's true that we need to persevere while we're discouraged. But Paul was able to, by this truth, lift his soul up. And we'll see how as we continue on. This is a glorious counterbalance of spiritual existence and experience. There are unavoidable degrees of temporary difficulty. What we're going to find out now that these sometimes unavoidable and unbearable degrees of difficulty pale in comparison to the eternal nature of who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, as we mentioned just a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12, and verses 16 to 18, you can write that right next to verse 14 here. This counterbalance, this adversative, there's this triumph that we have while we're enduring the greatest depths of difficulty. And it triumphs over the difficulty. He says here, but thanks be to God. In addition to being a counterbalance to verses 12 to 13, our text is several verses that lead us to thanksgiving to God in the midst of our difficulty. I know Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's the will of God that we be found thankful. I know Philippians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, teaches us something about not being anxious. For even one thing, but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We let a request be made note unto God. Yes, thankful, but here expressly thankful to God because he does something. He does something perpetually in our daily existence. He's always leading us to triumph. And that's a powerful prepositional phrase. In Christ. The triumph that is Christ's is ours because we are in him and he is in us. We own Christ's triumph. In Christ, the sting of death, that ultimate affliction that comes is, is, is removed in Christ, the power of sin over the life of the believer is removed. In Christ, removal from the very presence of sin is our imminent hope. And in Christ, we ultimately and globally will reign in a literal kingdom for a thousand years. We are always triumphing in Christ for these and so many more divine reasons. There were seven different authors I read in relationship to this word triumph this week. Not every author that 
address this text listed in detail what this word triumph was. Paul has in mind here a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph. This is a parade that was put together. It was a military parade after a Roman general had succeeded in the battlefield. Now, we're going to take a long time explaining what this Roman triumph is and was because Paul takes what was a Roman military triumph and he likens it to a spiritual triumph that we have in Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating. So, this would be a triumph that would ultimately lead through Roman roads to the emperor. To the emperor at the end of the parade. There had to be a commander-in-chief of a field army. He would have had to lead his army in a field victory. This could not have been a civil war. This had to be a victory over a foreign enemy, and that battlefield in which they fought would have been able to be claimed as Roman territory. The enemy must have lost at least 5,000 souls in battle. The Roman army must have slaughtered 5,000 souls. The victory must have been won clearly and emphatically. The triumph would have been organized as a parade marching towards the capital where the emperor would have been seated to receive all the ultimate glory. This is how it would have been visualized. The Senate and government officials were always at the front of the parade. Go figure. Some things never change. Trumpeters would come next with the spoils taken from the enemy. When Titus conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, he brought through the streets of Rome the spoils from the holy city of Jerusalem, including the golden candlesticks from the temple, the table of showbread, and the golden trumpets therein as well. Followed by a white bull. A white bull would come next, and that bull would be offered in sacrifice during the parade as well under Roman gods. The prisoners of war would come next after that white bull. They would be walking in shackles, being led ultimately to the emperor, and then past the emperor to what the Romans called, and I've seen this, it's called the Circus Maximus. And at the Circus Maximus, these prisoners of war would have been put in an arena with wild animals and killed with cheering folks in bleachers. Then there came behind these prisoners of war shackled lictors beating the prisoners with their whips as they walked. Then right after these prisoners of war who were being beaten, there would be musicians who would follow playing their music of triumph. There's no parade without music, right? Then the priests would follow, Roman priests, swinging their censers of incense, bringing about a sweet-smelling savor offered to the gods of Rome in victory. Then there came the victorious general, 
and his chariot pulled by four horses overlaid with purple regal cloth and strapped with golden palm leaves. In his hand, in his hand he held a, an ivory scepter with an old, a golden eagle on top. Then came all of his army, wearing all of their decorations, and they would cheer this to the music being played. Triumph, triumph, triumph. Paul has this in mind when he's talking about how he transcended, was able to pull himself up, or at least persevere in deep discouragement. He has in mind here the Roman triumph, but he has Christ as the commander-in-chief. He has God as the emperor. And in Christ we have triumphed, and Christ always wins. The reality of Christ's sovereign leading is cause for triumph, isn't it? Write down here in the margin of your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. We're not going to take time to read those this morning. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 to 18, found his way to triumph in Christ as he knew he was writing his last will and testament. He knew even as the chiefest of sinners before Christ, that in Christ, he would reign someday. Paul was very certain about the ultimate triumph he had in Christ, and he remained thankful to God for giving him the Christian uniform, so to speak, to wear and serving Christ's army. I'm thinking here of a non-Pauline text, but 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 but in all these things, Paul says, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Excuse me, that's Romans 8, 37. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And again, Romans 8. We are more than conquerors. We are ultimate conquerors. We are the best kind of conqueror. The word Paul uses there in Romans 8 would say, this is a conquering that is a global ultimate win. It is a complete conquering of the universe upon which sin has had its effect. Paul delighted to follow the general of his faith, Jesus Christ, his Lord, not as prisoners headed to judgment, but as fellow conquerors headed to triumph over death, over the grave, and sin, and hell. And Paul knows that his general is king, even over the Roman emperor. And in Christ, the Christian will reign with the king of kings and lord of lords. Christ always wins. And we will win with him, and we have won with them, and we are in the triumph of Christ as the church. So as I said earlier, in the triumph, there would be priests waving censers, smoking with incense. There would be women throwing flower petals from the sides of the parade at the feet of the triumphant soldiers. And as the petals were trampled upon, they would release a beautiful scent into the air, and that coupled with the priests burning incense, there would be an all-consuming smell of the company of the parade that was beautiful, it was distinct, 
and it was glorious. It was a smell that was only to be remembered as the fragrance of triumph, not to be duplicated in any other time in any other way. This was the smell of victory. Paul goes on to say here, or one author goes on to say here, and this smell manifests itself through us. And how do, what does the text say here as we go on? Read with me here in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Paul's saying here, you are the fragrance of triumph. Your gospel-lived lives are the smell of victory. One author, his name is Cruz, says this, that the knowledge of Christ is diffused like a fragrant odor through God's messengers in every place to all people. What a divine influence, my goodness. Not only is Paul thankful he's been placed into the ultimate victory in Christ, this phrase takes us to the second reason for being thankful. Remember, thanks be to God. The second reason for being thankful, which is God in Christ, has caused us to be an influence for the gospel everywhere we live and breathe. Yes, we remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we're to let our light so shine before men. That's part of it. We know as disciple makers, we take this fragrance to the world as ordered by Jesus in his post-resurrection appearance in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go and be a fragrance. Go and make disciples. Paul was convinced of the triumph. He was convinced of his placement in it, and he was convinced of his participation in it. His life mattered for Christ. And with this influence comes a divine and sobering reality in verses 15 and 16, which is our third point. Last week we mentioned to you that verses 15 and 16 teach us of our holy honor. Our holy honor in gospel purpose. Again, we remember that there were priests with censers, women casting flower petals down for the soldiers and horses to trample, all causing this beautiful, unique, and memorable aroma to arise for all to smell. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says this, when the aroma of victory had permeated the air, the procession would stop and sacrifices would be made at the temple of Jupiter, Capilonius, and this is where that white bull on the parade would then be sacrificed. And this was the Roman honor and the triumph to dedicate all the spoils and all the prisoners to the gods of Rome. Paul reminds us here that we have an ultimate honor. Our lives in Christ are living sacrifices and a sweet smell to God in his triumphal parade. And for those discouraged in daily ministry, please be reminded that your life matters to God in Christ. Please know you persevere now in the triumph 
of Christ before God. You are the sweet-smelling savor. We are the fragrance of God in Christ. Our pursuit of Christ-like living is our sacrifice of worship to God unto gospel purposes. One author said that Christ alone, this is powerful to me as I studied this text in relationship to our holy purpose. Christ alone is accepted before God. And through faith in Christ's perfect work of atonement, the Christian is justified and incorporated into him. To be in Christ is not merely to be within the sphere of his influence, but is to be really in him. There is no context for redemption apart from this mystery, end quote. Who could imagine their life would matter so much in Christ's triumph? How much do we even concern ourselves with this divine reality in our daily living? The fragrance of our spirit-filled, word-saturated, gospel-driven lives 24 hours a day is the beautiful, divine smell before God in Christ through you in every place. My goodness, this fragrance is pungent, isn't it? It's distinct. It's noticeable. You cannot not smell it. Because it is the sacred life and opportunity of the Christian. Certainly this holy fragrance is of Christ before God and and we are one in Christ, but this divine smell is a powerful, dual, divine influence among men. Yes, we know Paul also says in the book of Romans that the feet of those who spread the glorious gospel of Christ are blessed, but this is how they smell when they do it to two different parties. And this is the greatest significance anyone could ever have. Your life, my life, our lives matter. Distinctly matter in their influence to those who know us in two ways. So our holy honor of purpose in the gospel is first for those who are being saved. Do you notice that? Look with me, if you will, at the text. For we are a fragrance, verse 15 of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Our holy honor of purpose is for those who are being saved, to those, literally, who are being saved. I've smelled the fragrance of Christ this week among saints, ladies, in our church who ministered the gospel of Christ to Georgia Poe at her home going. I was ear witness to the family after her death of this smell that was unique to them. I sat in my office this week to have a family tell me of, the over, of being overwhelmed by these ladies who were triumphing together with a dying saint 
I've sensed the perfume of God's triumph in the life of Barb Green, who without fail lived and spoke the gospel of Christ to countless souls in her home. While she endured under the pressure of difficulty of caring for her husband, who was sickly for so long, and she loved and served her Christ as she loved and served her husband, and many smelled that savor. Wednesday morning, I sat in the dining room of Jim Rano, and the fragrance of God's triumph in Christ was distinct and all-consuming as Jim told me that during quarantine, his sweet daughter, whose body was being taken away from the home, had led him to triumph in Christ while studying the gospel together. The all-consuming fragrance of Christ was sensed and enjoyed as Jeff Baddock led Joe to Christ. And I sat with those two men and heard Joe speak and say, and I got out to my car and wrote it down, Pastor, just days ago I was an atheist and something happened to me and now I'm in Christ. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. I'm at peace and I'm still trying to wrap my head around what happened to me. This fragrance continues to influence the flock from life to life. And a man's life named Brian who's led to Christ by Bob Gray and Pastor Mike Brian's life is one with Christ and his words to us speak of a beautiful and divine change brought by Christ as his life is transformed by the grace of God in Christ and it smells really good. To the victorious soldiers in the Roman triumph, the odor was beautiful. Distinctly beautiful. Because it was the fragrance of victory. It was the fragrance of life. They had won over the enemy. But to the prisoners of war, it was a stench. Paul says here, part of our holy purpose is that our influence can be also, towards those who are perishing. It is among those who are perishing. The same, the same sweet-smelling aroma for the Christian is a stench of death to those who are perishing. To the Roman captive, there was nothing sweet about the aroma of Roman victory. It meant certain death for them as they would finally arrive, as I said earlier, at the Circus Maximus and be torn asunder by wild beasts. At the cheers of Roman citizens, with the emperor smiling and grinning on his throne, also watching. And your life to those who resist Christ as they watch you and as they hear you speak of him, it is repulsive. It is death to them. And I say, this is our holy purpose. And that's why Paul says next in the text, who in the world is adequate for this?
that question would have been understood by the Corinthian believers as they heard it or read it in this letter. Who is adequate to this? They would have understood as like, really, there's none. There's no one that has enough human resources, physical or immaterial. No one has enough bandwidth in their mind and in their heart to be able to wrap their heads around this reality, around this holy purpose. Salvation is of the Lord. It is ours to be the fragrance. It is His to save. We live Christ's life. We speak God's gospel. God the Spirit does what only He can do. And the results? Well, who's adequate for this? It is God that saves as we walk in triumph. That's our holy honor in gospel purpose. And we conclude this morning with verse 17. What is the unadulterated, undiluted purity of our gospel purpose? The unadulterated, undiluted purity of our gospel purpose. Paul says in verse 17, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. There are two adversatives there, right? Two times the word but is mentioned. So Paul in the second part of the verse compares sincere ministry compared to false ministry in the first part of the verse. He compares it using two adversatives and then two prepositions. Two times the word in is used there, and we'll explain that as we wrap up this morning. Paul says here, we are not like many. Can I just tell you from that little phrase that there's always going to be more falsehood out there in a fallen world than there will be truth, but truth in Christ always triumphs. Christ wins. He's already won. We've won in him. Truth will ultimately reign. We are not like many peddling the word of God. And I think the New American Standard translate that Greek word for peddling appropriately. It's actually what it means. How they would have understood it in this particular time period in the first century they would have understood as taking something to trade in the original for a counterfeit or to make something that you have its original counterfeit. To corrupt it. Luo Anita calls this a, a someone that would have been a, a street huckster. A trickster. Cheating, taking something that was original. Diluting it. It was often used of those who would peddle false wines at this time. They would take pure wine, dilute it with water, and go out on the street and sell it as original with the original label on it. Those who would have a portion of something that was genuine and mix it with something that was false. One author said this means that there were many out there that would tamper with God's truth. These were the peddlers. These were the spiritual hucksters of the day. And it would be the removal or the tampering with the purity of the original message 
for their personal gain. This is what falsehood does. It'll use portions of truth and add to it their error so that they make something off of it. They want to be paid. Literal money. They do this for cash. One author said, in our day, this would be like the sacramentalists of our day, the pragmatists of our day, the legalists of our day, and the opportunists of our day. And my friends, we have some of the most historically obvious hucksters of our time appearing and affecting the church, especially in the last three to four months. Churches across America have embraced hucksters. They've embraced those that have taken the truth and diluted it. Churches all across the country are splitting over it. It reminds me of 2 Peter chapter 2 where Peter said in the Old Testament there were false prophets and in the New Testament there would be false teachers and they would lead many astray through their pernicious ways. Imagine that, saints involved in the triumph of Christ and the parade of God being distracted by those on the sidelines saying, say, hey, here, look. Take a look at what I got. There's real triumph over here. Distracting them from their view of God at the end of the parade and ultimate victory. They lead many astray. My friends, beware of any movement that decides its goal is to destroy the institutions of God. They have a gospel. They ask you to bow your knee to it. They have a message. And to them, you're like the soldiers, captives of war, in shackles being taken to your death. And if you do not comply, you're dead to them. Beware of anyone that will take the three institutions of God, of human government, of the family and the church, and seek their demise. Amen. They're hucksters. Regardless of their label, They've been demonized. But they are to be loved and prayed for. For they're all made in the image of God. It's my job as a shepherd, according to this context, to help you not be distracted from the triumph in Christ. And the only way to do that is to maintain a very sincere, forward balance of being aware that there's many peddlers. There's many deceivers. But God takes no pleasure even in their death, for they're all made in His image too. Can we stand, be warned, stay in the triumph, and still have compassion? We better. We better but the stand and the forward progress and gospel purpose 
needs to remain unadulterated and pure. It's lucid, for Christ is lucid. It's clear what he's done in our hearts and our lives. But we bow no knee to hucksters. But you would spend as much time praying for their salvation and having the compassion of Christ on them because they're made in his image and they have value. I would encourage all of you, because I think there's many Christians, I have pastor friends around the country that have embraced a movement that they have no idea what it's truly about. I really believe there's been, that's what happens in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2. There are people in the triumph who are led astray because they don't know what they don't know. So all my pastor friends, I'm encouraging them to say, hey, look. <laughs> Stand for what's right, but don't take the right that's being done without being aware of how they've taken that which is wrong and diluted the right. Be aware. Be aware. Protect your flock. And love the lost. Amen. Love the lost. Paul says here, but from a sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ. This is where he ends. He even addresses the huckster with holy compassion and a plea for their soul to join the triumph of Christ. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul reminded the Corinthian believers, I did not come to you with words of man's wisdom, nuancing and wordsmithing and never having periods at the end of my sentence of human wisdom and ideology and smoothness of speech. No, I came to you declaring Christ and Christ crucified alone. So he can stand against the huckster, but he can still love him unto Christ. We have no real gospel if we can't pray for enemies and if we can't love enemies. We have no gospel unless we can love on enemies and share the triumph of Jesus. What a holy balance there's there too, right? Paul knew that this holy honor was a privilege to speak and to live faithfully. He knew it was from God. As Paul teaches that we are to each commissioned by God to speak as his envoys the message of Christ. He is the sender. We are the fragrance of God in this gospel intention and gospel purpose. Jesus may return today I know one thing that's certain about the future of the church. Jesus is coming for her. And it could be today. There's another thing that I'm certain that I know has been happening in my life and my family, so I'm pretty positive it's been happening in your life and family too. In the last five months, there's been a lot of Ephesians 6 going on. It's been heavy, hasn't it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. There is some type of incessant, constant 
warfare going on that's unseen that all of us realize it just seems to be particularly heavy of late. And in this affliction, as Paul mentioned in verses 12 and 13, in this difficulty, and it can lay us flat emotionally and even physically, in this difficulty by grace, but in Christ we triumph. Don't forget the adversity. Contemplate regularly the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look forward to him coming. And live life like you're in a spiritual triumph. You sang, we triumph in song, we triumph in listening, we triumph in enticing one another to love and good deeds. Since we're in the triumph, live and act triumphantly. Are you with me? Amen. Smile. You are, right? Yeah, I just can't see it, right? All right? You've won. We've won. It's over. Do you believe it? Amen. Do you? Yes. Seriously, I mean, of all times, I've never been this intense in asking you. Do you really believe the triumph is won? Do you really believe you're in it? Do you really believe that you're this saver? Yes. There was no one part of the Roman triumph who was unhappy except for the prisoners. Everybody else was thrilled. So let's be thrilled and rejoice in Jesus. Let's sing.